Today's show is sponsored in part by Audible.com, who has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and get yourself some Ziggler books at audible.com slash Ziggler. Built around the concept that you can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Well, remember, you were born to win. But in order to be the winner you were born to be, you got to plan to win, you got to prepare to win, and then and only then can you legitimately expect to win. You see, with integrity, you do the right thing. When you do the right thing, there's no guilt. With integrity, you have nothing to fear because you have nothing to hide. See, folks, failure is an event. It's not a person. Yesterday really did end last night. Today's a brand new day, and it's yours. Friends, in a show a few months ago, Tom Ziegler and I had reviewed a clip from Zig, and we're talking about finding one's strengths and giftings and natural abilities. Uh, that will be the key to your ultimate success and fulfillment and contribution to the world. Whenever we're talking about an ideal, I like to give practical resources. So I asked Tom, what's your favorite resource for discovering and discerning strengths and giftings and abilities and such? And you'd probably expect him to cite a book or something from his dad, Zig Ziglar, but he did not. He said with zero hesitation, Strengths Finder. So Tom Rath wrote Strengths Finder and has a new movie coming out called Fully Charged. He let us preview it, and we have him on the show with us today to really get into it. And I'll tell you more in a moment. I mean, chances are slim that you're not aware of Strengths Finder, but if not, here's a quick rundown. Then I'll tell you why we are talking uh, about it and and about this uh, upcoming movie on a on a slightly different tangent in today's show. So in 1998, uh, the father of strengths psychology, Donald Clifton, a PhD, along with Tom Rath and a team of scientists at the Gallup organization, created the online Strengths Finder assessment. Uh, in 2001, they included the first edition of Strengths Finder with the best-selling book Now Discover Your Strengths. In 2004, the assessment's name was formally changed to Clifton Strengths Finder in honor of its chief designer. So in 2007, building on the initial assessment and language from StrengthsFinder 1.0, Rath, Tom Rath and Gallup scientists released a new edition of the assessment program and website dubbed StrengthsFinder 2.0, which is what most of us know today. Rooted, uh, it was rooted in more than 40 years of research, and this assessment has helped millions discover and develop their natural talents. I mean, folks, I've been around the publishing world a long time. I went to Amazon a couple days ago to look at StrengthsFinder, and I found it sitting at number 316 in Amazon bestsellers ranking. Folks, that's that's all books overall, and that's absolutely nuts for a, for a book that old. I mean, name your favorite nonfiction book that's older than a year, and you'd be hard-pressed to find any book ranked higher than that. Well, so why is that? Well, for one, it's not just a book. It's a tool that is used daily, professionally and personally across the globe. I mean, I bought cases of the books 
to give to clients and, and my members over the years and, and other businesses do that as well. So if you haven't uh, gotten that, if you haven't done a strengths finder, go to Amazon now, uh, amazon.com, get your copy, take the test. It's an amazing tool today. So that's just some context today. However, we're going to talk about Tom Rath's current project, the latest and greatest of what he's into and one that's uh, about to launch. And, and we get a sneak preview of it. We get, we got one and we're going to talk about it today. A thanks today to Braintree for their support of this Ziggler show. I mean, it's a beautiful thing when your customers want to pay you, uh, but they want to pay you their way. Braintree lets you accept all forms of payment, including PayPal, Apple Pay, Android Pay, and more. Now, you can take them all in over 130 currencies. All it takes is a couple lines of code to get started. So to learn more, visit BraintreePayments.com slash Ziggler. So Tom Rath is an author and researcher, folks. This is some context on him. If you're not aware, he studies the role of human behavior in business, health, and well-being. All right. He's written six New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers over the past decade, starting with the number one New York Times bestseller, How Full Is Your Bucket? His book, as we just talked about, StrengthsFinder 2.0, it was the top-selling book of 2013 and 2014 worldwide on Amazon. Tom's latest bestsellers are Strengths-Based Leadership, Well-Being, and Eat, Move, Sleep. How small choices lead to big changes. In total, his books have sold more than six million copies and have made more and he have made more than three hundred appearances on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. So Tom's latest best-selling book and our focus today is called Are You Fully Charged? The Three Keys to Energizing Your Work and Life. And it's receiving acclaim as his best book yet, which that says a lot. And it's a subject of a feature-length documentary. So this book and his uh, second children's book, The Rechargeables, were released in May of 2015. So in addition to his work as a researcher, writer, and speaker, Tom serves as a senior scientist for an advisor to Gallup, where he previously spent 13 years leading the organization's work on employee engagement, strengths, leadership, and well-being. So you can find more about Tom at TomRathRath.com. So folks, I read through Tom's Are You Fully Charged book a couple of weeks ago while sitting in the living room with my family. I kept highlighting and reading segments and then popped on Amazon and bought a bunch of copies. I'm going to work through the book with a team at one of the businesses that I lead uh, that's very customer service centric. Uh, but that same night, I also actually ordered some for my kids, my older kids uh, for, for Christmas, actually Christmas gifts. Uh, but that same night, my nine and 10 year old boys picked up and read the children's version, which is called the rechargeables. And we talked about it on the drive to school the next morning, just uh, tremendous foundations of health that we got to talk about and beyond health into joy and fulfillment in the bigger picture. So we're going to talk to you today about this. Are you fully charged book and movie? And I'm going to have Tom Rath and Tom Ziegler with us. Now, here's the intro info for the movie. Okay. It says from award-winning director, David Martin and number one, New York times, best-selling author, Tom Rath. This movie is filled with expertise and provocative real world stories. This powerful film reveals practical ways to energize work and life. Fully charged is about transforming lives through healthier choices and interactions that strengthen relationships and the pursuit of meaning over 
happiness. So Fully Charged features world-leading experts on, number one, behavioral health, two, psychology of spending, three, social networks, four, decision-making, five, willpower, and six, meaning in your work. Uh, it's part of fully charged as part of a new series that challenges people to rethink what's most important for their work and well-being. So the in series the series includes the Wall Street Journal best-selling book already, Are You Fully Charged? The children's book called The Rechargeables, an, a Udemy course, and a website filled with resources for improving well-being. So, folks, before we bring Tom Rath and Tom Ziegler into the show, I'm going to play a three-minute trailer from the film. All right, now there there are some segments where it gives a big word on the screen to set up a comment. So when it does, I'm going to speak it out loud so you get the full effect here auditorially. Hopefully I can do that smoothly, but I think you'll get the point. You can also go watch the trailer by searching online for fully charged film trailer. Okay. So this is just a three minute clip. And uh, then I'm going to uh, bring Tom, both Toms uh, onto the show. Okay. So I'm literally playing this off my computer. Let me see if I can set it up here and get us rolling. All right, here we go. There are a lot of people out there today who go to work and just don't enjoy what they're doing. They don't get much satisfaction out of it. People yearn for a sense of connection in their work. They want to have a meaningful relationship to that process. We've learned selfishness and we've learned fear. And our systems kind of reinforce a message of fear and scarcity. People say this all the time to us. I know that this isn't really enjoyable right now, but it's going to be sort of better in the future. You have to maximize the time you have, even on an hour-by-hour basis today. Small moments. When we look at sort of dreams and passions, you have to have purpose behind it. It has to be something bigger than yourself. The three keys. Just the fullness of my face. It was so round. It doesn't take six months to start feeling better. You start feeling better very quickly. The concept for the performance triad came out of Afghanistan. If you look at sleep as ammunition for your brain, you would never go into battle without enough bullets. Sleep is the game changer. Every dot is a person. Every line between them represents a relationship between two people. Whether you're a nice guy depends on not only whether the people around you are nice, but whether the people around them are nice. Sunflowers are beautiful, so when people look at them, they automatically smile. We are connected. All the life we have is this very precious present moment. If you give to other people, you're made happier than if you give to yourself. When people feel that there's space in their life to give, that means that something in them is being enlarged. You never wake up in the middle of the night wondering why you're on the planet. It's absolutely possible for all of us to experience that optimal state. You feel great, you're full of physical energy, you're full of mental energy, you feel like what you do is making a difference, and you want to do more of it. 
it's an entirely different experience. Okay, folks. Well, I actually did not insert as I was going to because the video totally froze up on me, but the audio played through and hopefully you got some, uh, piqued your interest on some of the key, some key statements that go throughout the book. And of course, than the movie that's going to be released. So with that, all that premise, that's quite a bit, I know, but uh, I'm going to bring on Tom Rath and Tom Ziegler into the studio, and we're going to talk about this, these three keys for being fully charged. It's pretty darn significant. Okay, we're going to bring them in just a second here. So, folks, I have Tom Ziegler at Ziegler Headquarters live with us, and then also Tom Rath right now. And Tom, yeah, what a gift to have you with us today. I am, in general, a pretty inspired guy. And after reading your fully charged book and watching the movie, I'm not only more than inspired, but taking action on multiple fronts, which is the point. And I want to just thank you immensely for being with us and start off by asking, what was the personal catalyst for you deciding to write this specific book? Well, first of all, Kevin, thank you and Tom for your time today and for inviting me to be on your show. I've followed uh, your organization's work for many, many years, and it's fun to see the impact it's had on millions of lives over those years. And um, that kind of feeds into what got me focused on this topic of uh, fully charged that turned into the uh, nonfiction book and documentary that you referenced. You know, like I suppose a lot of us, I've, I was uh, sitting around a couple of years ago and have worked on a lot of different books, and I've spent the last five or ten years studying health and well-being pretty intensively from a research standpoint. But the question I kept asking myself when I woke up each day is, how do I integrate a lot of these important findings about how to lead a better and more productive life into my day-to-day routine so it becomes sustainable and changes my little behaviors on a momentary and an mm-hmm. hourly basis. And um, as I dug deeper, there's just in the last five, ten years, a lot of research has exploded on this concept of what creates well-being on a daily basis in the moment. And so I went deep into that work and tried to figure out what are some of the key elements that need to be present as we move through our days, not to have a good life overall, but just to have a a really good day tomorrow. Because what I've learned from all my uh, research on well-being over the course of decades is that uh, in most cases, our best relationships are the product of a lot of really good interactions. And the work that we're most proud of is the product of a few meaningful efforts in the context of a given day. And that we do our best work when we feel energized. We can be better parents and workers and so forth. So um, I, I was trying to go as deep as I could into the research, uh, my own research, research from a lot of external uh, experts on each of these topics, and figure out what are the best recommendations I could make for people that I care about on a day-to-day basis. Well, and that's what we're going to get into more today. And I I do love that premise. I'm going to try to break that down a little bit more. But uh, again, I played, I don't think I even let you know, uh, in the intro, I played the trailer for the movie for folks to listen to just to get a little snapshot. And of course, in the book, in the movie, I mean, right on the front cover, you're talking about the three keys and and, uh, the three key conditions that differentiate days 
when you have a full charge from typical days. And the three keys you came to for energizing your work and life are meaning, doing something that benefits another person, uh, interactions, creating far more positive than negative thoughts, and energy, making choices that improve your mental and physical health. And again, to what you said, and this was for really in the moment that day, which I I love, this isn't uh, some long-term look. So, But what got me is, Tom, you're a researcher. I mean, you didn't come to these three keys as as many authors do by, you know, it's your personal opinion and deduction, but these are solid results from much research. Will you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, you know, I've always uh, just, I think, by nature of my own kind of talents and uh, predispositions, I've come at things from a perspective of asking, what what does the research show in terms of real proven ways to do something or help people to grow, and so that's that's always been a part of my thought process. And some of that has been, frankly, driven by uh, the research from the outset has been driven by my own personal experience. Where, um, as we talk about in the documentary, I've kind of opened up about my personal story on this. That I was diagnosed with a real rare disorder when I was about uh, 16 years old. That essentially shuts off the body's most powerful tumor suppressing gene and leads to uncontrolled cancerous growth throughout the body over a lifetime. And so when I was 16, I lost an eye to cancer, and since then I've battled cancer and currently am in my kidneys and my pancreas and all along my spine, just a few areas. Um, And that got me focused way back then, 20-plus years ago, on how can I go deep into all the academic research on what are the little things that I can do. At first I started to look into to improve my odds of living a little bit longer, But the more I got into that research, what I found is that you really have to start with what can I do to make better decisions about my health today and tomorrow that also align with those longer-term outcomes. So that's where the um, I got into the topic of how do we ensure we have the right health and energy to be our best every day. And, you know, when you look at the problem that all of us share, when we did the research for this documentary, Fully Charged, and the book, Are You Fully Charged?, we asked 10,000 people if they had a great deal of energy yesterday, thinking about the whole day in total. And just 11% of people said yes, and the remaining 89% said no On when you ask them yes, yes versus no. And so what I can see there is that, you know, most of us kind of manage to get by on a day-to-day basis. We show up at work. We show up for life. We kind of check the boxes we need to check, but we're not showing up in that state that's where we're even anywhere near fully optimized or feeling like we're fully charged on a day-to-day basis. So this big research project that we had on fully charged, we were trying to figure out not only how do you pull the most relevant discoveries from the research in those three key areas, but in addition to that, we asked ourselves, how can you bring that to life for uh, kids, for college students, for people who are not reading nonfiction books today. And that's what uh, led into the documentary that you mentioned. Okay. Well, and, and speaking of your personal condition, I'm going to get into that as we hit these three topics and talk about uh, energy and ask you a couple things there. But that was what was significant to me. I mean, you surveyed 10,000 people and then came out with the majority of them, 89%, admitted and saying, yeah, they're to some level going through the day in survival mode or uh, maybe a, a, a level of um, minimal minimalization, not optimal. And that's, I mean, that's significant. And of course, why 
you did this and why we're digging in today. I mean, the overall concept you're aiming here again is, as you said, is that daily well-being, not far out in the future, but today and tomorrow. So, so Tom, I'm involved in a revolutionary new family practice model centered around functional medicine. I'm sure you know that term, but for those who don't, I mean, traditional medicine looks at, a, at an existing problem that's already manifested and generally treats it with a Band-Aid in essence, often a, a drug in, in truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an illness and disease management system more than wellness initiative. Functional medicine goes after root causes to actually eradicate or at least drastically minimize an illness or malady altogether. And to do so, you got to take in the consideration, the whole context of a person's life. But to the point of your daily well-being and not putting things off to the future, I mean, even with the best care on the planet, there are, of course, levels of unwellness that you can reach, which can't be healed or, or fixed, at least not completely. And, and so, Tommy, is that what you're getting at by trying to ad- address daily well-being, that if we don't tend to our daily well-being, we'll likely never get to true wellness. We won't be able to get uh, fully charged, of course. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the biggest challenge I see where it's, it's fascinating to me that, I mean, I, I've studied a lot on these topics around how to, what are the decisions I can make in terms of moving around more throughout the day and eating the right foods and so forth to improve my odds of living longer over time. But even in my extreme case where I have active tumors growing in my spine and kidneys and stuff, it's, it's still not that helpful as a motivator to pick the right thing for lunch today, frankly. Hmm. And what is, is knowing that if I choose a cheeseburger and a milkshake at lunch today instead of a, a healthy salad with a bunch of vegetables in it, I won't have anywhere near the energy I need to be a good parent with kids who are four and six years old at five o'clock tonight. And when you start to look at it through that lens of what are the things that I can do in terms of the foods I put into my body or moving around a little bit throughout the day so I'm not sitting for six hours in a row at work so that I can be effective in a meeting at two o'clock in the afternoon when I get home with my spouse or my kids at six o'clock at night, it, it just makes it easier to build your day and structure it to meet those short-term incentives that, by the way, also happen to be aligned with the long-term stuff, but it just makes it easier to work on the near-term goals. And, you know, the same thing applies to those other two areas as well. It's not just about energy, where instead of worrying about repairing a relationship that's not where it was several years ago, if you do a few kind things for another person today and improve a few interactions, those start to add up even quicker over time. And what got my attention on the topic of meaning and creating meaning in the workplace was a a fascinating study that we highlight uh, by uh, Teresa Mamabla at Harvard, and it's her husband, Stephen Kramer, she did the research with. But they went back and looked at diary entries from 10,000 workers across a variety of professions and coded what was going on throughout the day. And the single biggest differentiator between people who were engaged and satisfied with their work versus people who were not was that they, the people who loved what they were doing found small little ways to tie their work to something that's meaningful for other people. So you mentioned the 11% that don't have the physical energy. So there are uh, only 20% of people who say they did a lot of meaningful work yesterday. 80% said no. And my hunch is that a lot of us are doing meaningful work, far more than 20% on a given day, but we don't take the time to step back and connect a small effort to help a customer, to help a colleague, to help someone you care about with the way that really contributes to their day. And in bypassing that acknowledgement, it's a detriment to our day and we don't have as much energy to do more of it. 
Tom, I've got a I've got a comment that I want to make, and I want to get your feedback on it. Dad used to have this quote. He'd say, uh, "The number one cause of of failure is people trade most what they they trade what they want most for what they want now." So what we want most is, you know, we want good health and and we want to live our dream and, you know, all the things that people have. But we trade that in for the cheeseburger and fries at lunch mm-hmm. uh, because that's what we want now. And I've been, you know, just going back, back and forth. What is, what, what are the, you know, the top things that we can do to bring that connection between what we want most and what we do now? And here's the question for you. Uh, when when we look at uh, our teaching around the Wheel of Life, we have seven spokes on the Wheel of Life. And there's three spokes that I focus on, which are the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. Because if you get those three things right, then the others tend to fall into place. And I, I have a concept of this this idea of a sequence of success. In other words... Uh, I've, I've been playing this debate in my head. What do we, what do we work on first? Do we work on the mental and control our input or do we work on the spiritual side? Because after all, everything's about meaning in life. Or do we work on the physical first because we can get such a great instant return on the physical side, whether we exercise or eat right, we can start feeling better, which gives us energy to do everything else. And so I just, I'd love to hear what your research and what you think if, if we were going to start on one of those three areas, uh, which one's going to give us the best long-term success if we can get one of those turned around? You know, Tom, it's a, I love that question. It, it, it kind of, and also the quote that you shared, thank you. And it's it's something that I've wrestled with personally uh, through all this research I've done. So, you know, where, where do you start with some of these things? And when I published the book, the book uh, Eat, Move, Sleep, a few years ago, um, that really went deep on the topics of the physical side of things in that uh, spokes on the wheel you're talking about. That essentially, what I learned as I went around, I talked to all these people I admire most. I spent time with uh, both in a personal context and professionally with a lot of the uh, most effective hospice nurses and home care workers around the country and spent a lot of time with leaders of big organizations. And the thing that the people I admire most, teachers, leaders, nurses, really have in common is that they have this, other serving altruistic nature that um, leads them to often put everybody else's basic physical needs in front of their own. And while I, I admire that more than I can explain, and I've done it myself for many, many years, even if, if you really get objective and clinical about this, this is the researcher in me talking, if I'm a hospice nurse and I need to be at my best for a patient who's in their last few weeks of life or for a family in their most dire time of need, I need the maximum physical energy at 6 o'clock that evening in order to do as much in service of the people who've looked to me in that time of need. And it's, it, it gets back to the kind of tried, but boy, is it true, the oxygen mask example from the airplane where if you're not doing those things first, it's it's very hard to function in service of others, in service as a parent, um, and to create meaning and to have, I mean, think about it. If you, if you really get a bad night's sleep and um, don't get any activity and you have a lousy breakfast, your interact, your interactions throughout the day are palpably different with the people you work with and care about. So my, 
I, I, I appreciate you asking that because I don't talk about this much in the book or video, but I've learned in my life to just prioritize that physical energy piece first because it enables the others to be more effective and essentially has an amplifying uh, effect. All right. So a follow-up question. I'm, I'm, I'm drilling down because uh, I'm a nerd and I've researched this and I just want to see if what you come up with is what I've seen. In the physical aspect, there's there's usually three primary categories uh, that people look at as as huge indicators of physical health: what you eat, how much exercise you get, and how much sleep you get. If you had to pick between one of those three, Tom, which one would you make sure that you did? If you, if you could only pick one of those three, would it be a get enough sleep, get enough exercise, or control your diet? What is what does the research show on that? Um, the, what I've learned through a, a deep dive on that I did a few years ago is that, um, a good night's sleep is a good place to start because essentially no matter how bad your day was mood wise, we studied this, um, at, at the end of the day when people rate their mood, no matter, no matter how bad the previous day was, if you get a good night's sleep, so a solid seven or eight hours where you'd rate your sleep high quality, it's essentially like the reset button on your smartphone or video game where you get a clean slate the next day. You're more likely to be active throughout the day. You're more likely to eat the right foods. And it starts an upward spiral instead of what happens when you get four or five hours of choppy sleep and it's hard to do those other things in the day. So I'm not sure I'd argue that sleep is the most important for longevity, but it's a real good place to start in a practical way. What might be most important for longevity are the foods that you put into your body, if you just look at it from a, from that different lens in terms of, I mean, you know, it's interesting to me. I, I, I don't claim to be an, a deep expert on nutrition, but I've read hundreds of books on uh, diet over the years and tried all kinds of the fad diets like everybody else. And in reality, the one thing that people who have been successful with their eating habits and drinking over the years have in common is that they build things into their routine that are sustainable over a lifetime instead of jumping from one fad diet to the next. And I think we can learn a lot from the common elements that there's really not much disagreement on across those diets where there's nobody out there telling you you need to eat more fried foods today or you need to add a lot more sugar to your diet or you need to avoid green leafy vegetables, right? So sometimes we overcomplicate this stuff. But when you look at the basics of a diet that's sustainable, I think there are a lot of common answers there that have a much greater influence on our day-to-day well-being than people give it credit for. There was a study I referenced in Eat, Move, Sleep where researchers found that people literally get what they call a high-fat hangover at uh, 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon at work if they eat a lot of unhealthy or fried or high-sugar foods in the middle of the day. And if you can start to see how that influences your mood, it helps a lot. And then, the you know, you mentioned exercise. One thing I would challenge in the conventional wisdom out there that I see 9 out of 10 times is that I don't think exercise is the right target for the third one. Um, I think movement or activity throughout the day is far is a far bigger problem in our society than lack of exercise. And when a lot of us, I'll put myself in that camp, when you hear you need cardiovascular activity 30 to 60 minutes, five or six days a week, that might do more harm than good just because it's so intimidating. And it's not that fun. Um, 
But what most people, at least in our kind of Western lifestyle, have a problem with is sitting throughout the day. And if, even if you do 30 to 60 minutes a day of exercise and then you go sit on your rear end for 8 or 10 hours, that does not, the exercise does not counteract all that sitting throughout the day. So what I learned when I was digging into that body of research is that the first priority for people should probably be to move more throughout the day. And then once you get that down and you're not sitting for several hours at a time and you've broken that up and found ways to get work done while you're moving, then try and build some cardiovascular activity into your routine. But it's a secondary priority in there based on what I've said it. All right. I love it. Uh, I'm going to leave you with a quote and turn it back to Kevin. I can remember 1980s early, uh, kind of my first memories of dad speaking in front of huge audiences. And he had this quote, he would say, you know, hurricanes and earthquakes get all the, all the advertising, all the press, so to speak, but termites do more damage and they take such little bitty bites and it's interesting how our whole attitude about our life is we get focused on the huge events when it's the little bitty bites that we take on a regular basis change everything. So I just, I just love the, the simplicity of the wisdom that you're sharing. So it, it's just fantastic. You know, that's the, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I, if someone were to ask me what's the unifying theme across all my books and work, it, it, it sounds obvious, but it, it all comes down to it's those small choices throughout the day that lead to big changes in your life over time. And that's, that's where I focus almost all my time and attention based on where I've said it. Well, I want to ask, so we're, we're in here on this topic. I love this, this thread on energy and want to ask a specific question in regards to that. I mean, again, you put your own health first and into Tom's question, which I love, if you have to pick from those areas, where are you going to get the biggest bang for your buck in essence? And you said, gosh, if you only got to pick one sleep is going to give you that big restart. So let's, let's talk about sleep. So before we do, folks, you need to gift your life by getting some of Tom Rath's best-selling books, such as Fully Charged Now. And you can get one for free today at audible.com. So Tom has five books available there. You can get your free 30-day trial to get one of those at www.audible.com. A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash Ziggler. They also have a whole parcel of Ziggler books and 180,000 other books. I mean, we've recently had Dave Ramsey and Andy Andrews on the Ziggler show as well. They too have numerous books available at audible.com. I mean, folks, this is what Zig Ziglar dubbed Automobile University. You can let the time pass by as you drive and commute, as you wait to pick up the kids at school, as you exercise and work out, or you can capture and maximize the time by pumping in the best of today's knowledge and information and training and inspiration through audible.com. So again, you can get a free 30-day trial now by going to audible.com slash Ziggler. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash Ziggler. So my wife, uh, Tom, is mother to eight kids, uh, husband to one youthful adult. And I mean, her programming in, in much truth necessity feels like to pour out, of course. So she's pouring out, pouring out. She actually started a platform uh, around the term called Mommy Sabbatical with a tagline that says, take a break from the ones you love so you can love them better. Again, kind of going back to your put your own health first. First, so she speaks at, at MOPS groups on this topic. 
But from her experience, and as you talk about this, and especially when you're talking about sleep, you're saying you need to sleep more. You need to go to bed earlier or sleep in later or, or, or one of both, whatever it is, but you need to guard that. That the thing that I see that comes up from people, one is, you know, is, is making the choices to say no to some things. They're going to have to say no to some good things in order for a great thing thing. But in that moment, and I've experienced this myself, seems like the a primary obstacle in, to do that is just guilt. Does that, does it, do you see that with people? It's that guilt to say, okay, I know I hear you. I need to get more sleep, but when it comes down to it, sleeping a little later, going to bed earlier, there's that guilt and, geez, I, I, should, I should do more. Yeah, you know, the, the stigmatization around sleep is, is something that's been really profound over the last uh, decades, and maybe for, maybe for 50, 100 years, where I grew up in a hardworking Midwestern culture in Nebraska, and the last thing I would ever do based on the role models I admired would admit that I need a whole seven or eight hours to be effective. Mm-hmm. And the the people I admired were always bragging about needing three or four hours and still getting by and not sleeping was kind of a badge of honor. But the the more I've studied this personally in the uh, military study that and out, researchers have studied it, it, it turns out that every hour invested in sleep is really um, – more of an investment instead of an expense and we've we've got to change the way we're thinking about that in the documentary fully charged the army surgeon general uh patricia Hirojo, she's a three-star general commanding five million people across the uh, medical command of the military she's had a battle inside the pentagon to try and say we have to make sleep a priority because she talks in the video about how you know we can't have soldiers in the battlefield who have the equivalent of a six-pack of impairment in their system when lives depend on it and she she talks about how they've studied and found that soldiers need what she calls sleep ammunition for their brains when they're in the battlefield and boy was that profound when i heard her say that because it's if we start to look at sleep like that, we don't want, I don't want a pilot on my next flight who has a six pack, the equivalent of a six pack of beer in his system. And I don't want someone teaching my daughter's first grade class who has that kind of cognitive impairment because of lack of sleep. And I think a part of reducing that stigma is to have a really open conversation. You know, it's, it's been fun for me because I've had small kids uh, who that's always a challenge to sleep while I've been working on a lot of this. And, um, the the thing that we've been very cautious of is to make sleep a very core household family value as they're growing up where the you know we make sure the kids have a window of at least 11 12 hours to get to get as much sound sleep as they can and you know the last thing we do is tell our kids they need to go to sleep as punishment because think about the message that sends and the first question i ask my son and daughter in the mornings when i'm around is did you get a good night's sleep? How do you feel? And it's and they start to see that as something that's a, an essential requirement for a good day instead of the first thing you're taught to push aside when things get really busy. And, you know, I've, I've changed my own uh, work and personal structure around that as well where I know that I had, I had to have to change the times that I fly in when I'm traveling to make sure I have a chance and even need a bigger window to make sure I get enough sleep versus when I'm at home if I want to be effective if I'm in a meeting or giving a presentation at 8 o'clock the next day. And so I think as we bring that conversation to the surface in homes and in workplaces as well where it's traditionally been shunned to a large degree, hopefully that will change some of the expectations so we can build our schedules and routines to enable people to have enough sleep to be their best. 
That seems significant to change the badge of honor of, yeah, I only sleep four hours a night to bragging of, you know what? I get eight hours, nine hours, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pranit, that would be a significant change in the culture. So on that note, I want to ask you, Tom, a question that or a, or a thought that I've pondered, or it seems like a, it seems like a prevalent, I don't know if it's a perception, a misperception that with health and wellness, with, as you're talking about sleep and diet and exercise, that we have so many people that seem to let their physical well-being die on the altar of, of doing things and serving and, and working and providing. And it seems like we have this unsaid, maybe subconscious perspective that our bodies can go to hell in a handbasket in, in essence, and yet our mm-hmm. brains function separately and, and we still can get a lot out of there. And we have that perspective. Yeah. The guy who just slaves away all day at the desk and uh, is is really getting letting his health get poor, but that he's doing great, brilliant work. And, and I I look at that, and I think it just doesn't make sense. Our brain, if if I if my body is unwell and I huff and puff going up the stairs because I lack strength and energy and endurance, and I have weakness in my body and I have illness in different aspects, my brain's not separate from that it can't be running at full capacity if the rest of my body isn't does that ring true yeah i think it's a it's a spot-on observation and what keeps i mean what keeps me up at night is the fact that you know at least 70 percent of all these conditions heart disease cancer and the like that are um, taking the lives of people we love when they're way too young are largely preventable as, as you both mentioned and i think the the way that what helped me to start to change some of my own behaviors a long time ago, and it's what I've built all this work around, is I read a, a really simple study uh, from an academic group looking at how if you assign people to ride, just ride a bike for 20 minutes on a stationary bike in the morning, they what they looked at was every hour after that, what are the differences in their elevation and mood that day, same day, and their satisfaction with their work and so forth. And what was fascinating is that, you know, if you set aside all the physiological benefits, so forget about the heart stuff, forget about the cholesterol and the blood pressure and all that, let's just look at do you, do you feel better all day um, or, or how long, how, how much longer do you feel better? And people had a statistically significant increase in mood three hours out, six hours out, and even all the way out to 12 hours it was still significant in terms of how much better their moods were and how they felt about what they were doing if they got just 20 minutes of activity really early on in the day. You see the same thing now with the studies around sleep versus mood everywhere, it's clear, and and with diet as well, where if you eat the right things, especially early on in the day, it just sets you up for success later on. And I think that's where, if you were to say to me, how do we help people here in the United States to kind of turn this tide of poor lifestyle choices throughout the day, and set a good example for the rest of the world before it ever gets as bad in other pockets as it was here today, you've got to start by deconstructing those little default behavioral choices we make throughout the day to help people see how there is a clear connection between what's going on inside their body and their not only their cognitive ability and effectiveness, but just their mood. We all want to have a better day today. Most people wouldn't disagree with that. And one of the ways you get there is by moving your body around more and putting the right things in and so forth. 
And that I, uh, gosh, I, I see that daily that we tend to, as a culture, look at our daily mood as somewhat of a lottery. If I wake up today and, uh, you know, I feel good today or, or I don't, it's just happenstance instead of what you're talking about is the intentionality of it, which of course is core to Ziegler message by far and wide. I have to say too, Tom, that your analogy of, or, or not your analogy, but your experience of so many people may do a daily exercise but then sit on their butts for eight hours. That is exactly me. I mean, my work is primarily writing and I enjoy it. I love it. And I can sit for uh, a long time engrossed in what I am creating through writing, but that's what I would do. So I'd get up, I would do my 30 minute run, hour run, a bike ride, whatever it would be. And then the rest of my time, I was so sedentary with my heart rate at, at bottom level and that started to gnaw on me. I ultimately got a stand-up desk so I can I can change it to sit sit down, stand up, uh, put a, a uh, pull-up bar in the doorway of my office and got some weights in there. And so doing that, and, and I, I have to just testify to what you're saying, it has been significant for even my just overall energy uh, aside from, you know, weight loss or, or whatever may occur from just that consistent movement. I just, I feel, I feel great. Um, so just a testimony to what you're, you're talking about. I experienced that myself, but so we talked about energy uh, a bunch here. I want to hit real quick on the two other aspects of your primary keys. Uh, the first one, uh, was meaning. Uh, and so I want to hit on that. I mean, you said this came right out of the book of all the events that engage people at work. The single most important by far is simply making progress and meaningful work. And then you said, make work a purpose, not just a place. And this intrigued me. You said the difference is in is often in that purpose or not in work is in whether or not a worker had strayed from their formal job description. I love that had strayed from their formal job description and become involved in meaningful interactions and relationships with patients or, or customers. Those who had done this found greater meaning in their work. And Tom, what intrigued me that that's different than the norm of thinking, okay, to have work that's really meaningful, find some work where the product or service is something that you're, you're passionate about, or is fun, or you really believe in it kind of even goes beyond that and says, really, the meaning is, is beyond that company or product or service and goes to the relationships. Am I, am I seeing this right, Tom? Yeah, it's been fascinating for me to watch how the more researchers study this in, in real-world settings and scenarios, it turns out that, you know, even if we think we have a big purpose in mind and we're passionate about the company that we work for, we need help in making those connections on a day-to-day -day basis. And just one example, a study with two groups of radiologists. You know, I spent a lot of time with radiologists who were reading scans from MRIs and CTs and uh, so forth throughout the day. And you'd think that if you're a radiologist and you're helping patients with cancer every day, you'd think you had a purpose in life and you're doing meaningful work, right? Mm -hmm. But when when researchers assigned radiologists to two different groups, one group just kept doing the normal thing where they're reading the films, writing the reports, and so forth. The second group, all the researchers did was append a small thumbnail photo of the patient mm -hmm. to each record. And when the researchers looked at this over time, the group of radiologists who were randomly assigned with the patient picture condition, they wrote 32% longer reports, and their diagnostic accuracy increased by 46% because they could connect what they were doing with an actual face and an actual person. And you see the same thing in food service where if 
if you're cooking in a kitchen and you're locked behind a big wall where no one can see you, as most people are and when they're in food service today, you don't make as good a food as people who also can see the customers who are enjoying the fruits of their labor, who make better quality food. And it's actually more nutritious, too, on average, if they can see the person they're serving. And so, you know, organizations and managers, and each of us as individuals, we've got to find ways to acknowledge and bring that humanity back into our day-to-day routine instead of it just being a, a mission statement that's out there and that might not give you as much motivation on a day-to-day basis. And it's also, to your point, it's got to be, we need to help people see how it's serving another human being in society uh, more than just serving your own passions or interests. Because while following your passion or interests can be a really good idea, if that's not aligned with what other people need in this world, it's it's really hard to make that productive and sustainable over time. And so and that is the other thing from all of uh, Adam Grant's work at Pan and many others, it's pretty clear that when we perceive that we're doing something that makes a contribution to another person or to society, we just do better work. So in a, in a call center setting, he had uh, scholarship recipients come in and talk to the call center reps who were dialing out and trying to solicit funds. And when they either read an email from an actual scholarship recipient or better yet, when they met the scholarship recipient in person, it increased the amount of money they were bringing in per week by uh, three or fourfold. So we need to make sure that we can connect what we're doing with how it helps another human being because that essentially fuels even more good work. There was a a book, uh, Tom, that I read probably a year ago called Shop Class as Soulcraft. Can't remember the author's name, but he just he talks so much about that, about the trials and challenges of being more and more involved our culture in work that we are removed from the end product, the end result, and that end relationship uh, that was significant. And, and as you were talking about this, it reminded me, I watched again because uh, my, my kids had bought the movie for me. I hadn't seen it in a long time. I watched Patch Adams uh, with Robin Williams. And that that was such a light bulb in that moment, making that making medicine personal, not just being a body mechanic, but having a real relationship and how that helped the patient's care as much or maybe sometimes more than the actual medical practicing of medicine on that person. So, again, I just you resonate uh, so clearly with the. Uh, objectives of this book. It's, it's, I'm, I'm incredibly inspired by it. Well, I, I want to hit some, so meaning, uh, we talked about energy interactions was your next one. So on that note, a company that excels in interactions is trunk club. You get a personal stylist who leads you in style selection and ordering. Then you receive premium fitted clothes at your doorstep. You try them on for size and style, keep what you want, send the rest back and request different sizes and selections, and they'll quickly end up right back for you to try on again until you get what you want. And the entire process generally takes less time than you'd spend even deciding where to actually go physically shopping, much less what to buy. I mean, I don't enjoy the process of shopping and am admittedly not up on what the styles are. I'm not a fashion maven, but people do judge a book by its cover and looking good simply helps you in any and all relationships and endeavors. It's just a fact, like it or not. So Trunk Club takes care of this. I'm also cheap, but time is money. And in the time I save by not going shopping, I can create a more couple more Ziggler shows with incredible guests like Tom Rath. So get started today. 
Trunk Club will style you for free. Plus, you get free shipping both ways to and, and from what you send back. Uh, you only pay for the clothes that you keep. So take advantage. Go to trunkclub.com slash Ziggler. All right, one more time. That's trunkclub.com slash Ziggler to get a trunk filled with clothes that you're going to love wearing. Uh, so I pulled a piece out of the book again. It said, when you lose weight, when you act happy, when you act kindly, you affect other people and they in turn affect other people. And by our estimates, you can affect 10, 100, sometimes more individuals from your actions. And I'm, again, I'm just taking this right out of the book. The actions you take throughout this every single day accumulate to shape your years, decades, and overall life. However, when you think about a typical day, it's easy to take those moments for granted. So Tom, with this meaning focus, the idea of finding work with meaning, that seems somewhat tangible, doable maybe. But here, altering your personal interactions which my gosh, those are ingrained, you know, ingrained emotion and attitude and, and habit. I mean, this is, this is the, the depths of personal development 101, and this is not easy stuff. For someone to hear this, I think it can be overwhelming to change my, my attitude and my reactions to people. I mean, what, to look at that, what are some realistic steps to start on a new path of that making every interaction count and not just responding as we are, I mean, I'm 45 years old. I've been responding in similar fashion for a long time to change that and to make every interaction count, to make it positive and to have good interactions is that's a big task. Give us some baby steps for that. Yeah. You know, that's, that's been one of the most interesting things in terms of how do you, make that practical so we don't take it for granted on a day-to-day basis. And going all the way back to, I think, the the first book that I worked on uh, with my late grandfather, How Full Is Your Bucket, that was essentially a metaphor that was about how every time you interact with someone, whether it's a stranger or a spouse, a loved one, um, it either fills their bucket a bit or it takes from it. And these interactions are usually a little more positive or a little bit more negative when you think about it. And there are thousands of them in a given day. And what it's what we've learned from all the research, both in uh, it started with research John Gottman did with marriages, and now it's moving into the workplace with work teams. You need at least three, four, five positive interactions just outweigh one negative, because a negative interaction carries a heavier charge and is a greater detriment to your well-being on a daily basis. So my my real quick shortcut that I keep in mind as I'm uh, moving throughout the day is that. We've got to make sure at least 80% of our interactions are far more positive than negative in order to have a good day. And while, of course, there are going to be times during the day where we have rough moments and conversations and we can't control how someone else is feeling or how they're doing when they first walk up to us and if something is negative to us in the first place, the one thing that we obviously do have control over is the interactions that we initiate and create and start and how we respond to another person throughout the day. So to, to be real practical about this, um, I, I mentioned in the book that, you know, because I'm, I had lost that an eye to cancer when I was young, I'm blind in my left side. I can't see past my nose. And when I'm in a coffee shop or any crowded store or area, I bump into people on my left all the time and they think I'm just being oblivious. I didn't see them. They can't tell. Um, and it, it's been an interesting lens for me over the years into human behavior because uh, nine out of ten people will uh, also, like I do, I have my script down of profusely apologizing and uh, kind of laughing it off and not letting it get your day down. But once every five or ten times, 
someone will get real angry or hostile and for me it's a that's a lens into what's going on in their day at that moment it has nothing to has nothing to do with me in most likelihood and what I've learned there is that that's always a fun opportunity to say, can I try and do something that maybe gets this person a little closer to the neutral line um, after the interaction, and that can carry forward, and maybe their day won't be as miserable for the next few hours versus where they started. And um, I think we've all got that little challenge. If you think about the, it's almost like a battery with a positive and negative charge. Uh, we do have a chance every time we talk to someone, or I maybe mean, you pass by a stranger on the street, you smile and acknowledge them instead of digging your head into your smartphone, that makes a little difference in the course of their day. And you can actually see how all those things add up over time when you go through a lot of the social network research that we talk about in that video. Yeah. Yeah, Tom. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this interaction thing, and, and uh, I was reading a study uh, probably about a month ago, and it was about uh, uh, cystic fibrosis, the lung disease. And it talked about the bell curve and about how different hospitals, they follow the same protocol, exactly the same protocol, uh, but their life expectancy rates are totally different. So you think about a treatment protocol for somebody with cystic fibrosis, and one hospital or one treatment center might have an average lifespan expectancy 10 or 12 years higher than the next one. And what this uh, research broke down to is it came back to the interactions and the mindset that the doctors had at the different hospitals. One group was just, we're going to follow the procedure. This is what everything indicates. The other one, it was personal. It was every patient was that picture that you were talking about earlier. And the interactions were, well, why are you, you know, why is your lung capacity going down? What have you done different? What can we do that's outside of whatever the protocol is to make you the exception rather than the rule? And so, I mean, I want everybody to hear that not only do interactions make your day better, but they add years to your life. I mean, we've got, we've got data behind it that says when you have the right kind of interactions, you're healthier and you live longer and you have more fun in the process. Who wants to live to be 95 and be miserable? Nobody. That's why miserable people don't live to 95. So I'm just, you know, everything you're saying is just, it's so simple the way you put it. Uh, are there, you know, how can I, when I wake up in the morning, do you have any keys or any thoughts that, that I could practice that would say, hey, I'm going to have good interactions today here are three things I can do. Yeah, you know, it's it's a great, just quickly on that, it's a great example where you talk about the hospitals because um, it, that's, for me, that's a real practical illustration. I go to one major hospital uh, in the area out here. I do all these MRI and CT scans every six months, so I spend weeks in hospitals each year. Um, but I go to six different departments because of all my conditions, and even within a single hospital, it's like you're going to different countries or different worlds when you visit these areas because some have such a different dynamic in terms of the relationships among the teams and how that transfers to the way they treat patients that it's just it's a totally different experience and what's encouraging for me in seeing that is that all of the research that I've studied in the workplace when I was working at Gallup and so forth would suggest that these changes occur one person at a time 
and they occur one work team at a time. So it's not just if, if you feel like you're at a hospital where the whole thing's so miserable, you can change that just by starting with a few interactions among your team. And then if your team gets more engaged and boosts your well-being, that spreads pretty quickly and changes the dynamic of an entire department, of an entire floor, of an entire hospital. And we've seen how that plays out through data over time. And so I think the my suggestions for um, individuals when you wake up in the morning, it's, you know, try to figure out what, what do what do you need physically to be your best this morning and today so you have the energy in those interactions to be of service and to enjoy your day and make a few deliberate efforts, just maybe even one a day, to initiate a new interaction with another person, whether it's at work or at home, where you do something that clearly boosts their spirits and sends the trajectory of their day in a different direction. And that, that will continue to carry forward even when you're not watching. I, I've seen that play out in the data. Um, and then to find, it's really, I mean, even one simple way that you can connect one of the most frequent things you do in a given day, whether it's raising a child or whether it's serving a customer or taking care of a patient, how can you bring a reminder into that routine about how your work is actually affecting their day and their life and remind yourself of that because not only will that result in a better effort for that person, but it will motivate you to do even more high-quality work going into the future. And, you know, a lot of this, there's a, one of the experts in the movie is a guy named Brian Wansink who uh, wrote the book Mindless Eating, a great one. And he's done all this research on, you know, you can make better choices throughout the day if you kind of build the right defaults into your routine. So he talks about, you know, if you have fruits and vegetables out on the counter, I always have mixed nuts everywhere I go with me or carrots or something, then you it's a lot easier to resist the temptation of grabbing a handful of candy or getting bad food as you're racing through an airport. Um, we can do the same things with structuring the defaults throughout our day so that we remember to initiate a positive interaction. We remember to steer clear of someone who always gives us secondhand stress throughout the day because that's not good for the rest of our network. Um, and we remember to bring some of the humanity back into our work by structuring the normal routine of a day so that naturally occurs instead of putting your head down and burning through so fast that you forget to come up for air and remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, there, I, I live by that, you know, consequences and deadlines and half of my daily movement and exercise is geared around. I don't allow myself to eat the next whatever meal or, or snack or whatever it is until I've done a movement and that little trigger helps me continue on it. Otherwise the day goes by and days go by and weeks go by and I have done nothing but, uh, sit on my butt and work. Well, Tom, I got just two, two more questions that I want to hit on. One, going back to what you cited as sleep in the military, sleep being ammunition uh, and looked at with that type of gravity. I mean, health and wellness overall in, in this entire premise with fully charged, you are showing it, you know, health and wellness is, is ammunition against just being taken down by whatever, by illness or depression or hopelessness or lagging energy or mental and emotional deficits and on and on just negative things. I mean, Going back again to your own, your own uh, circumstance of having a gene mutation that gives you a 
in essence, a supercharged propensity for cancerous growth. I mean, you, you wrote off right in the beginning of the book that you lost the genetic lottery. I mean, this is, this is critical for you. And I get, I see it in our culture and I've experienced it myself that we tend to take things for granted and we don't act as if things are critical. And you said in the book that you feel like you're daily in essence, living on borrowed time, but if we look at our culture, especially here in America, I think, I mean, we are increasing in disease and illness and even to put in there just that, again, lacking energy. And we, we get to, to hopelessness and we see depression increasing and little things kind of like back to Tom uh, Ziegler, what you said, termites. I mean, nobody's perfectly well, of course, and, and without seeds of illness and disease within us. But are we not Tom Rath? Are we not all, in truth all living on borrowed time and either feeding or fighting or opening or shutting the door to our own illness and disease and ultimately, you know, death or just lessening the joy in a given day. And, and to that degree, it's, it feels pretty critical for all of us. Would you agree? I would. I, you know, it's, it's interesting, man. I was talking with a, a, a friend yesterday and he asked me about, you know, don't, don't you wake up in the middle of the night with kind of that uh, fear of death that scares you or motivates you and drives things like a lot of people do. And, um, you know, the, the thing that I've realized is I'm almost, maybe I'm too pragmatic, but from a practical standpoint is that I, I wake up every day and say, you know, like everybody else, the only thing I can count on is that I've probably got all day today to get some things done and to make a difference for people I want to serve and for my family and that my hope each day is that I can do something that continues to grow long after I'm gone. And so that, that's a good reminder to try and initiate some more proactive efforts, whether it's about my own health or whether it's about a project I'm working on, that aren't just kind of getting caught into that, just responding to everything coming at you in a reactive way throughout the day. And that's that's been a pretty good daily motivator for me beyond uh, all of the long-term stuff and really keeps me going. And I think that's that's something that we can all rally around and say that, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, anybody could uh, have a catastrophic event occur tomorrow, and you, you never really do know, but the beauty of the opportunity we all have in life, from my standpoint at least, is that we can, we all can put our efforts forward today, and it, I mean, it could be as simple as investing 30 minutes in paying attention to one of your kids, or it could be writing something that lasts and lives on for a long time, um, or mentoring someone at work, and those efforts will absolutely continue to grow, um, whether we're gone from this earth or whether we're gone from that workplace tomorrow, which can also happen in this day and age, right? Yeah. And so if you if you orient your days around how do you plant some seeds for the future that don't require your direct time every day to grow, it, it really helps to connect some of those things over time, at least for me. Well, so to... And gosh, you know, on that note, I, I got to say, and, and I'm thinking Tom Ziegler back to what you said too, that we so often, or the headlines, you know, get the, uh, the earthquake or the big tragedy, uh, that erodes or, or, or damages, uh, people or an area, but what does more damage is termites is those little things. And, and Tom Rath, as we talk about these and the things that we do daily, those daily choices that are going to build me up or tear me down, 
I, I know a primary fear I have is is letting myself be at a lesser than optimal optimal level, at not being fully charged and allowing those termites to come into me, whether it's being critical with my kids and, and not engaging or being aware of the opportunity for a positive interaction. And I fear those termites uh, significantly. And so I have a personal question for you. When we talk here on The Ziggler Show, we have so many world leaders, world changers, uh, people who are influencing our culture in significant ways as you are. And sometimes I know people who are folks who are listening and, and myself as well. We can look at you and go, oh, my gosh, this is one of those superhuman people. And yet I, I bet you're, you're not. You put your pants on the same way as the rest of us do. And to that degree, when you look at these three areas that you're saying, these are what makes you or attributes to you having a fully charged, significant day as opposed to not meaning interactions and energy. What time is the area in there that is the most challenging for you to stay fully charged in? assuming that there's some areas that, you know, you're, you're pretty good. It comes, it's not that difficult. Are there some specific areas at a specific area that you re- it's an Achilles heel in essence that you really have to work at to keep yourself fully charged. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that because I, I have to work hard at all of them. I mean, I've I've re-engineered my entire workspace in my office to make sure that I can't sit down or I will. Um, and then I'll, it's been a lot of work in process, and I add a few things every few months to try and make a new default in my daily routine from that standpoint. But the you know honestly, the the one challenge out of all these areas that I increasingly face, and I think a lot of us do, is that it's harder and harder every day simply to pay attention to the people who matter most in our lives. And with all of the distractions at our disposal with smartphones, people unlock their smartphones 100 times a day. They check their email 200 times a day on average. And um, that's not counting all the phones ringing and other demands coming in through our family and workplace and the like. That You know, it's to genuinely sit down with, my wife or a friend, or especially with my kids, and pay attention to what they're talking about about their day without interrupting, genuinely listening, asking some probing questions, reading with them. Those are the those are the moments that really create a lot of meaning for me in the span of a given day. And it takes deliberate action and effort to tune out all those other distractions. And I see the same thing in my work, where if I really want to work on a project that I think could help thousands of people in the future, that requires tuning out hundreds of day-to-day requests flying in that would seemingly be very important and I should pay attention to. And so I I think, um, you know, we we showcased this in the documentary, Fully Charge, as well, where a a photographer went around New York City and took pictures of all these couples who are out at dinner and on trains together, and they're just both caved into their phone and not paying attention to that interaction, another person that... When you choose to be in a room with another human being and have a conversation, whether that's at dinner with a loved one or in a meeting with four people at work, simply taking your phone out and putting it on the table, even if it doesn't ding or vibrate or you don't answer it, statistically degrades the quality of the conversation for everyone. So we've got to figure out ways to turn our do not disturb on, keep our phone stowed away just so it doesn't send the wrong message, 
and then to close our mouths and listen a little bit better. That's, listening really well doesn't come naturally for me at all. Um, and I, I've learned and learned and learned to be better at that for the sake of asking good questions and learning and contributing to people's development. So that's, that's the one that's a day-to-day struggle for me. Well, that's significant. And folks, to reiterate what he said, to generally, genuinely sit down with wife or kids or friends and genuinely listen and ask probing questions. And it takes deliberate action to tune out the distractions. I mean, Tom, you're speaking you know, to me. I have a, I'm, I'm so enamored with my family, uh, specifically my we got a big household, and I, I love so many pieces of it, but that is difficult. It's difficult to take time and to sit down, just like you said, sit down, genuinely listen, ask a probing question. We're together a lot, but that reminds me of that quantity of time in regards to quality. When did I take a specific kid and really look them in the eyes, talk to them individually, and keep the distractions out? I, I think... That steps on my toes in a in a needing way, and I know does a lot of other folks too. So, uh, folks, again, the TomRath.com, T-O-M-R-A-T-H.com is the website. And, of course, you can get to everything there. Uh, Fully Charged is uh, the book that you can find there. Of course, you can find it on Amazon. And now, Tom, when is the – and I know you gave us we, – we received a preview of the movie. When does that actually go public for everyone to see? You know, we've been doing screenings and just had the formal uh, premiere and launch at the American University a couple of weeks ago, and it's as of today uh, live on iTunes and Amazon and Vimeo and all the other places. So uh, we'll be doing more of a formal coordinated launch around at the first of the year, but uh, it's available now for people to check out. Oh, excellent. Okay, well, there you go. So type in Fully Charged. And, and even on the trailer that I had everybody listen to, if you just type in Fully Charged, it generally it comes up, Fully Charged movie trailer, you'll get to it. But folks, check this thing out. It's uh, I'm privy to a lot of great content. This is one that I know has hit me at a right place in time as well, but feels incredibly significant, relevant, and and highly, highly needed. Tom, thank you so much for giving us uh, your time and your insight and for endeavoring and devoting what you have to give us these incredible resources and, and revelations. Um, it's just uh, an incredible honor. Thank you. Thank you both for your time. You know, it's been a, a really fun, we talk about meaningful moments through the day and this has been a meaningful conversation and a, a good learning uh, for me. So thanks for your time. Thank you, Tom. We appreciate what you do and how you're uh, impacting lives. Keep on keeping on, as we like to say. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Well, hang on with us just a moment so we can say goodbye to you individually. Folks, thank you for tuning in. Um, I know you got value of this. Please engage uh, in what Tom has been putting out for us. And go get fully charged. Go get the book. Watch the movie, please. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. We will see you on the next Ziegler Show. 